Research shows, and I'll quote from the article, research shows that when you compare patients who use hospice with those who do not, matched by demographics such as age, race, gender, and diagnosis, the hospice patients live longer. And they said something that I think is very, very true, and and, uh, those of us who work in the industry wish more people understood. It might be the hospice care itself that helps a patient's condition stabilize, eventually rendering them ineligible to continue receiving care. So all too often, when people do elect for hospice, we expect them to improve. We expect them to oftentimes stabilize. We kind of call it the honeymoon period. Welcome to the With You at Every Step podcast. We address your healthcare questions and help you navigate life's challenges. Our guests share their expertise and real-world advice related to care for older adults, grief and healing, and pregnancy and parenting. Every Step is a nonprofit healthcare and human services organization offering dozens of programs that are there when people need us most. Learn more about our free and low-cost services at everystep.org. Thank you for listening. Here is our host, Holly Carver-Kim. And welcome to With You at Every Step. We have an important topic we're going to talk about today with Dr. Tom Mosier. He's the Chief Medical Officer for Every Step. And Dr. Mosier, thank you uh, for being on the show again today. Thanks for having me back. Well, we're going to talk about hospice. Um, And, you know, those of us who are in uh, the realm of hospice care, obviously I'm not personally, but I talk with professionals like yourself who do uh, hospice care. Uh, it's not unusual to me to hear that uh, uh, people can be in hospice for six months or 12 months or less than six months. But there was a recent uh, newspaper article that came out in response to Rosalind Carter passing away uh, very shortly after entering hospice care. But her husband, former president Jimmy Carter, um, has been in hospice care for quite some time. I think it's over a year now. So we wanted to talk about how long is somebody in hospice? Um, and I guess the simple answer, Dr. Mosier, is it depends on the individual? Absolutely. Uh, sadly, looking at just statistics and demographics from hospice use, the average uh, Medicare beneficiary who elects hospice is on hospice a very short time. But paradoxically, that actually doesn't have anything to do with the hospice. In fact, um, data continues to show that people who elect hospice often live longer than those who choose not to. And so the, the trend tends to be that people wait too long to elect hospice because they're afraid of hospice, because they have a perception that possibly it will shorten their time or they're giving something up. So uh, I guess I'm wondering if you're not in hospice care um, and you have a a life-limiting disease, let's say you have cancer um, and you know that uh, your life is going to end. Why would you elect not to be in hospice care? What is it that people are are afraid of? I think there's a lot of misperceptions about hospice. And some of the uh, biggest things that we see is that people think they are electing to stop medical care or to leave modern medicine. And actually, there is 
nothing more untrue about that. Hospice care is the continuation of aggressive evidence-based medical care. It's care, however, that's focused on the patient's goals of living better, having better symptom control, having better quality of life, rather than care focused on trying to extend life um, with aggressive means that oftentimes do lead to a, a higher degree of a burden or even suffering for the patient due to uh, the risks that come with some of those aggressive treatments. Oftentimes, as one becomes more sickly, they are also more vulnerable. And so those treatments that might help them oftentimes render more harm than help. Um, I often say just because something might help you doesn't mean it will. And just because you can do something, therefore, doesn't mean you should. There are definitely uh, many times and places in medical care to uh, not take that risky um, pathway of another dose of chemotherapy or another aggressive round of treatment that could potentially lead to side effects or higher burdens of suffering and ultimately not accomplish that goal, which is most hoped for. So uh, let's say then you do, or you're, you and your family, of course, there's a lot of consultation. You consult with the hospice care team and your own uh, primary care physician. The decision is made. Um, I, you know, I want to start receiving hospice care. Um, and then you go on to live longer than they may have anticipated. How does that come about? Yeah, ultimately, um, one of the things that we know from time um, of, of hospice is that ultimately the average patient lives longer um, than, than what um, a disease age match patient may live if they're not in hospice. In fact, it was really interesting because an article came out um, recently uh, comparing and contrasting Roslyn and Jimmy Carter. Um, they, in essence, are two different paradigms that we see. Jimmy Carter has been on hospice, I believe, for over a year now. Um, and his wife, Rosalind, recently um, went into hospice and lived a very short time. And it brought a, a big discussion out and forward about hospice care. And what they cited uh, in uh, the article, I believe it was um, the New York Times, or no, USA Today, um, that that put that article out is that um, ultimately um, research shows, and I'll quote from the article: Research shows that when you compare patients who use hospice with those who do not, matched by demographics such as age, race, gender, and diagnosis, the hospice patients live longer. And they said something that I think is very, very true. And and uh, those of us who work in the industry wish more people understood. It might be the hospice care itself that helps a patient's condition stabilize, eventually rendering them ineligible to continue receiving care. So all too often, when people do elect for hospice, we expect them to improve. We expect them to oftentimes stabilize. We kind of call it the honeymoon period. Ultimately, when people don't have um, well-controlled symptoms, when they are not getting good sleep, when they're not in their home, when they are 
uh, in a hospital setting where they're at high risk for uh, side effects to aggressive therapies and or uh, encountering some of the superbugs that we see in bacteria and viruses that are in those hospitals when they are juxtapositioned to a patient who is very sickly, they run high risks of increased um, health complications and problems. And so ultimately, when they come on hospice and they are then in their home and they are better controlled and they are getting better sleep and they're feeling more uh, desire to eat and drink. And when they are living well, they oftentimes we see kind of a stabilization period or a settling of that disease state. And so it is not uncommon to see somebody stabilized to the point where after they've been on hospice for a period of time, six months or more, we begin to think, you know, maybe they are not as close to end of life as we thought. And so sometimes we have to go through the hard decision of re-looking at if they remain eligible. And sometimes we do need to then discharge somebody for stability. Because ultimately to continue on the benefit, I as the medical director need to feel that somebody most likely is in their last six months of life if the disease continues to follow the course I expect. And so it is very common to see patients come on to hospice when they come on early, get all of the benefit to the point that they even uh, eventually may be discharged for stability. We, in essence, talk about that as the good and the bad. The good being, we don't think you're as close to end of life as you once were when you were so sickly. The bad being, we may have to part ways for, for a time and discharge you for stability. Now, ultimately, if a patient is on hospice a long time and we continue to feel they just are defying the odds, but they, but the, the vast majority of people would, would die in the next six months if the disease followed its expected course, we would continue to recertify them. So the article goes on very accurately to describe that there are first two 90-day benefit periods that are the first six months of your hospice lifetime benefit, and then unlimited 60-day cycles. But each cycle, the medical director of the hospice does need to continue to use their best judgment to determine if you continue to qualify. So in essence, someone has nothing to lose and everything to gain if they are not foregoing aggressive life-sustaining treatments. And if their goal is to just live to the best and highest quality for whatever amount of time they have to live. And uh, ultimately, the, the regrets we see are far and beyond always about wishing they would have elected hospice sooner because they ran away from it maybe for too long because they didn't understand how much it would benefit them. How, um, how does uh, a family... Uh, come to the decision that it that they should explore hospice care. Are there signs, or um, do they depend on their f primary care physician to tell them, "Hey, you know, hospice is an option here." How do you know that this is something you should even look into? That's a really great question. The first thing that's important for people to understand is that, unlike any other. Um, subspecialty area of care, you do not need a referral from a physician to reach out to a hospice and have them come evaluate. Um, so, you know, if you need to see a heart doctor, you can't just call a heart doctor's office and set up an appointment. You need a referral from your doctor. 
In hospice, however, you don't need that referral. You can call. Now, we will reach out to your doctor and get records, and we also need your doctor to feel like you most likely are in your last six months, your loved one is in the last six months. So we do need them ultimately to weigh in. But to first uh, begin to gather data for the hospice then to reach out to the doctor and let them know um, if they feel they're eligible for hospice um, can be initiated by family. And one of the things that is um, is all too common in healthcare is we see a lot of provider and system-related breakdown issues with relation to these referrals. Um, there's a lot of fragmentation in care unintentionally, but it's not uncommon for patients to get very lost to follow up to their primary doc particularly when they're sickly and they can't really make it into clinic. So ultimately, they may end up going from the hospital to a post-acute um, rehab situation in a nursing home or somewhere else, ultimately then back through the ER, through the hospital multiple times, and the, their provider can lose track of what's going on with them and wouldn't even know to talk to them about hospice. Um, it's also not uncommon for the doctors they encounter to maybe not have on their radar um, the whole uh, course that has been presenting. They're more looking at the acute issues that need to be resolved and not maybe looking at the historical trend of decline. So they, it's not on the tip of their mind necessarily to always talk about hospice until things are, are likely very progressed. Um, it's also not uncommon for providers who think about it to just maybe be a little apprehensive to bring it up. They don't want to misstep. They don't want to step out of place uh, with relation to their primary care doctor and their role. Um, they may feel inadequate in having that conversation, so it may be avoided. And so ultimately, um, it's very common that somebody can be very sickly, very appropriate for hospice for a long time, have been in and out of the hospital with a progressive decline and an increasing burden of suffering and, uh, and illness. And nobody along the way has ever stopped to talk to them about what's most important to them in their care in the context of what's going on or what they expect going forward. And so when uh, those conversations finally happen, what we often hear is, why did somebody not ever talk to me about this sooner? I wish I would have known I have regrets. I wouldn't have done things that I did had I known the medical facts and what you all as my care team expected long ago. Uh, that prompts me to ask, what if uh, your loved one is, uh, you know, advanced age, let's say, um, possibly receiving care in a nursing facility and they don't have, uh, you know, a, a, an active disease, uh, but they are uh, diminished capacity, unable to care for themselves, sickly, perhaps recurrent UTIs or uh, something like that. And the family is wondering, is there something different we should be doing? Um, what would you respond to that uh, as family members who look at their declining parent, let's say, and wonder, I wonder if, if this is a case for hospice. Yeah, I would always encourage that the family reaches out to a hospice to have a referral nurse come out, gather information, assess their loved one, and pass that information then to the hospice physician. Because ultimately, many times, 
there is something there um, based on that physician's expertise and training that would um, potentially qualify them for hospice. If in the case, however, there isn't quite enough uh, decline or information, that physician then can guide the family as to the kinds of things that would indicate the patient is appropriate. So there are some guidelines that Medicare puts out to help guide uh, physicians in those decisions. And we also have a litany of experience as uh, those of us who work in the hospice industry of being able to recognize the signs and symptoms and decline that typically comes when somebody is, is near end of life. So we can often then stay close to that family, continue to check in. We can give them guidance if they don't qualify for hospice on other services that may meet the needs, even though they don't qualify for hospice. So there's a lot that can still happen, um, a lot of information and oversight and coordination and direction that can still happen by simply making a call to the hospice for an evaluation. This is sort of a crass question, but it might be one someone's thinking of if they're listening to us today. Uh, let's say they're going to make that call to every step uh, just to find out, you know, to get that consultation. Is there a cost associated with that? Do they need to start thinking about pulling out their insurance card or how does the cost of all that work? Yeah, it, it often does seem uncomfortable to talk about money in healthcare, but let's face it, it's often one of the biggest challenges and barriers. In fact, um, one of the things that people uh, often find out way too late is that options and solutions to challenging gaps are typically bridged when somebody comes on hospice. And many times that gap is the ability to afford their care, the ability to afford their medical equipment or the ability to get medical equipment at all uh, when they're not on hospice, the ability to afford their medications, uh, the costs um, associated with their medications and the co-pays associated with their medications, um, the ability to uh, have caregivers in the home at private duty. Uh, you know, our home care benefit um, will meet the needs of some, but typically the goal of home care is to rehabilitate somebody to the point that they can be discharged and live better without home care. And so ultimately, when somebody has continued decline and is not going to be able to re be able to be rehabilitated realistically, they typically don't qualify for home care. So oftentimes that puts a family in a situation where they can't afford caregivers to come in the home and help. They can't afford to pay private duty nursing at 40 to $50 an hour or private duty nurses aides at 20 to $30 an hour. And so cost is a real issue. It's a real barrier. Um, and so when hospice um, is appropriate, when a patient is admitted to hospice, hospice becomes the payer source of all of that. Hospice provides all of the durable medical equipment, even the equipment that maybe they didn't qualify for, like oxygen. Uh, it's not uh, known well to people who don't have lung disease that you have to qualify for oxygen uh, in Medicare. But ultimately, if you're on hospice and you derive cover from oxygen, the hospice can provide that without having to need, meet those Medicare qualifications. Um, things like lift chairs, things like portable oxygen so you can get out with your family, things like commodes, um, and then all of the drug costs. Uh, it is very rare for a medication to not be related to the hospice diagnosis or a cluster of diagnoses that make somebody appropriate for the benefit. 
And when those diagnoses are related, hospice assumes coverage of all the medications. We become the primary payer source of all of those things. And so oftentimes it is a win-win. People's financial burdens of care um, go away significantly and they have a very robust care team. In fact, that uh, leads to, again, a lot of uh, misinformation and misnomers in the hospice realm. People often feel like palliative care and hospice will take options away, that they will have to leave their home, that they'll lose their doctors, that they'll stop getting medical care. And the reality is they are empowered to stay in their home with a extremely um, diverse robust and highly trained team to care for them, which is an extra layer of support to their primary doctor and doesn't replace their primary doctor and has more doctors that are trained in specific ways for end-of-life care to help support their doctor. They will receive a lot more uh, services and um, backing for what's going on. And so it is a win-win. In essence, there's nothing to lose, everything to gain. And what people also don't understand is that ultimately, if um, they improve and a treatment becomes available that maybe wasn't available because they were too sickly, or they simply change their mind about their goals, it is as simple as revoking the benefit and signing a piece of paper and you're back on Medicare instantaneously. So again, you could literally see how it goes and see how you feel. And at any point, if you don't I want to continue to have the hospice team involved. You can revoke the benefit and go back to Medicare with no red tape at all. So it is truly uh, the best decision anybody makes when they are very sickly and declining and, and alive but not living well and qualify for hospice. Uh, what you said is, is uh, I think, to sum everything up, you don't have anything to lose and everything to gain. Um, and uh, Dr. Mosier, as always, thank you for being the expert you are on all these issues. We appreciate you talking to us today about them. Absolutely. It's something I'm very, very passionate about. Um, you know, when I was very young in my career, I had no idea that I would have an interest in working specifically and solely in hospice because I I too did not understand what it really was. And it wasn't until I encountered hospice um, by working in a, in, a, in a hospice organization in my, between my first years of medical school and second year that I suddenly realized the incredible power um, that came from this kind of care and from this team-based approach to surrounding patients and families with uh, things that that. Uh, meet the real needs that come with such grave illnesses. Well, we're very lucky to have you uh, on staff here at Every Step, and and it's clear that, that uh, I'd want you on my team if I were in that situation or a loved one was. Um, and maybe you're listening today, and you have uh, you have questions, or you're wondering, well, when is hospice care appropriate? Uh, it's as easy as going to our website, which is everystep.org slash findcare, uh, everystep.org slash findcare. And there's a confidential little form, takes you a couple minutes to fill out, uh, just say, you know, I have questions about hospice. 
uh, and then you'll be contacted by one of our staff members by phone. Um, and it's just a simple, easy conversation. There's no, uh, there's no stress involved with it, uh, no obligation. It just, uh, you know, it might be very helpful to you to have some of these questions answered. So thanks again for tuning in to uh, With You at Every Step. And I'm Polly Carver-Kim.